Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's Word, fellowship, and prayer. Let's uh, open up our Bibles, shall we? Acts chapter 21. Haven't been here yet. This is new territory, new chapter. Acts chapter 21, we're going to start in verse 1 here. But before we do, uh, just by way of recap, um, uh, today's message is going to be called Going Your Own Way. All right? I I couldn't, the whole time I was preparing this message, I could not help but just sing that Fleetwood Mac song over and over again. Fleetwood Mac had like a resurgence among hipsters like two years ago. And I think since that time, everybody just like knows the Fleetwood Mac catalog. So you probably know that song. Go your own way. And that's what we're going to be talking about today is what happens when you go your own way. Uh, but, but by way of recap, and I think it's a good way of framing our introduction today, there's a way in which you can look at the book of Acts in terms of geographic location. In other words, God's work in the book of Acts in the history of the early church when the apostles were going out and spreading the gospel, you can see it in terms of three unique or distinct places, uh, geographic location cities. And so if you want to bring up that next slide, at the beginning of the book of Acts, we see Jerusalem as kind of the headquarters of what God is doing. So the apostles in the early church are sharing the gospel. We can see that, uh, maybe that climax in in Acts chapter 2 when we see uh, the Holy Spirit descend on those early believers. They go out into the streets and they're preaching and teaching and, uh, and, and souls are being saved and the church is growing in Jerusalem, and it's primarily among the Jewish people. So we're talking about people who were of the, of the Old Testament faith system. Uh, they believed in God, uh, but they were being uh, awakened to the fact that the Messiah had come, and they were beginning to believe the gospel, and you're seeing lives change, and you're seeing all these miraculous things happening. The apostles are performing these miracles, and Peter kind of sits at the center of what's happening But as you come to the close of this section, uh, as it's laid out there for you, uh, and you're getting ahead of me. What are you doing? John's got itchy fingers over there. So as you get to about Acts chapter 9, 10, what you're beginning to see is that the persecution in the early church is beginning to ramp up in Jerusalem. And so you're seeing the the Jewish uh, uh, leadership, the religious leadership are beginning to oppress uh, and call out men by name, and, and uh, the Roman leaders are beginning to follow suit because they realize that it appeases those religious leaders to, to, to persecute the Christians. And so we see the death of Stephen, and then the church begins to scatter. And that brings us to the next location, which is Antioch. Antioch becomes kind of this focus. And so what happens is, as the per- persecution begins to heat up, it starts getting white hot, the, the Jew, uh, Jewish Christians from Jerusalem begin to spread out into these other regions uh, that, are, that are populated by Gentile people, Greeks primarily. And they're beginning to spread out into all these other places. And as they do that, churches are beginning to sprout up in other cities where Jews would have, Jewish Christians would have never thought to go otherwise. And the, the seats of what God is doing is really Antioch. Antioch becomes the model church for us. In, in our narrative, in our story, we, we see that Antioch is where uh, really the model church begins to rise up. And this is where we see Paul and Barnabas, they get ordained and sent out to really to do the first 
missionary work of going and planting churches, like the, the first strategic gathering together and thinking, okay, now how do we continue to make this happen? How do, we, how do we take what's happening in Antioch, the discipleship, the teaching, the training, the worship, the love, the affection, all of this stuff, how do we take this and see this spread throughout the whole world? And so let's come up with a strategy. Let's go ahead and ordain Paul and Barnabas and send them out everywhere. And we'll start raising up leaders and discipling them and training them and sending them. And so Antioch becomes a model for us and, 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 and a spark on really what we would see to be the very first church planning movement in all of history. And so we see names like uh, Paul and, and Barnabas and Mark and Silas and Luke and Timothy and Titus, Aquila and Priscilla. These are all characters that we've talked about over and over again uh, as we've studied Acts. And now that leads us to Rome becoming really the final uh, geographic city of significance in our story. And so what we recognize, all these places that Paul and the guys are going and planting churches, these are Roman-occupied states, okay? All throughout Asia Minor and all these big cities and places that we've gone to throughout our story, these are places that really are, are under Roman authority. And what we're seeing is uh, Paul beginning to spread the gospel, and as he does so, God is beginning to lead him and push him to go to the city of Rome. He's never actually been in Rome at this point in our story, he knows of the believers there. We studied Romans before we got to Acts, for those of you who are, who are old school. And, before, you know, I know we've been in Acts for like, what, 20 years now. But before that, we were in the book of Romans, and, and we can see the letter to the Romans, and Paul acknowledged that, that, that God was doing something awesome in Rome. He just hadn't ever been, right? And so we see God is kind of funneling him that direction, and that's kind of where we were left off. But but even though Rome was the focus and, and, and Paul was called to the Gentile people, he was called to the Greeks, he was called to the Romans, and that was his primary focus in terms of his mission, Paul couldn't seem to let go of this, this love and affection that he had for the people of Jerusalem, the Jewish people. And in his heart, he was called, despite the fact that he was called to Rome, felt called to the Jews. And so we see Paul knew that he was supposed to go to Rome and minister there, but he wanted to first visit Jerusalem. In today's message, we're going to unpack the consequences associated with Paul determining to get to Jerusalem despite the fact that God was leading him elsewhere. And in many ways, this is a message that's a follow-up to the sermon that I preached a couple weeks ago in main service. For those of you who were with us in main service when I preached that message on the four proofs of God's leading... In many ways, this message dovetails that quite nicely. And so we're going to look at what happens when God is leading you a particular direction, but you choose another path instead. And what are the ramifications when you, even, even in your best intentions, even, even when you mean well, what are the ramifications when you choose to go your own way? So let's pray. And then we're going to start in verse 1. Is everybody with me? Everybody's got their coffee. Everybody's focused. You see, it's kind of a little bit hot in here. It's hot. It's summertime. We're going to have to deal with that. Uh, maybe it's just me, but it's a little hot. A little hot. Um, but we're okay, right? Everybody's, everybody's with me. Let's ask the Lord's help this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we're grateful for any opportunity that we have to be in your book. And we acknowledge right now that we're weak. And... Um, we're insufficient. We're insufficient. We were insufficient for our salvation. There was nothing we could do 
to earn favor with you. There was nothing we could do to earn heaven. Uh, It was only by your mercy towards us, only by your grace that we ever found you, that we even get to know your face. And so God, the same thing is true every day of our lives, even this morning. Lord, there's there's nothing we can do. Uh, There's no amount of studying. There's no amount of focus uh, that we can conjure up. Uh, that there, there's no amount of distraction um, that can really stand in the way of what you want to do this morning if we just simply yield ourselves to you. And we know that you're God, and we know that we are far from that. We, I mean, we couldn't even tie our own shoes if it wasn't for grace. Every breath that we receive into our lungs is because of you. And so, Lord, we just ask that you would extend that grace once again right now and you teach us exactly what needs to be taught today. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Acts uh, chapter 21, verse 1. We're going to follow Paul's path from Miletus to Jerusalem. So you need to follow with me and pay really close attention. In verse 1 it says, And it came to pass that after we were gotten from them... In other words, if you remember, Paul was hanging out with the leaders from the church of Ephesus. In Miletus, they were having kind of a secret meeting, right? You remember that? Last time we were together in Acts? And in that meeting, there was a few things that he wanted to to, to talk to them about. And the first thing that he wanted to do was ask them to inspect his life. Do you remember that? He asked them to look at his life and consider how he behaved himself, how he performed his ministerial duties in their midst, and to remind themselves of just how much he sacrificed over those three years in the church of Ephesus, what it was that he gave in order to serve them. And he wanted to remind them that his testimony was blameless before them. And in so doing, he wanted to call them to consider their own lives, and it brought him to the next point of his sermon, and that was to take inventory of their own lives. And he showed them how to do that. He showed them how he took inventory of his own life. And he said, to, he, said he showed them, and he, and he said of his own life, this is all the ways in which I am choosing to see eternity beyond my own circumstances. Okay, And so he's taking account of his own life, and he says, this is my perspective. This is the way that I see, the way that I hold myself. This is the way I see my life. This is my reality before you. And he taught them how to take inventory of their lives. And then finally, he explained to them what it looks like to have a life fully invested in ministry, what it looks like to truly suffer under temptation and trial in order to be a good shepherd to the flock. And in so doing, he's reminding these leaders, look, you are now the shepherds in Ephesus. I'm no longer going to be there. You're never going to see me again. It's likely that our paths will never cross. And so just as I shepherded you in love, it is your responsibility to also make sacrifice and to shepherd with love. And and that was that conversation that they had in Miletus. And and so he takes off from Miletus. They, they, They set sail, and it came to pass after we were gotten from them, And had launched, we came with a straight course unto Coas. And so we do have a map here. And you're going to be able to see as we follow along here through the passage, you're going to see the movement from Miletus down towards Jerusalem. Coas was an island in the Aegean Sea, uh, not far from the the shores of of the subcontinent of Asia Minor where he'd spent so much time. And it says, in the day following, unto Rhodes. And so you can see Rhodes there on the map. This is the largest island in the Greek uh, uh, this, this, is, this is called the Dodecanese 
islands. See this group of islands here, okay, in the Aegean Sea is referred to as the Dodecanese Islands. And they're still called that today. And um, Rhodes was the largest of those, uh, of those uh, islands. In fact, uh, at the time, there was a giant sculpture in the midst of the Aegean Sea that, that, that sailors could pass through in order to get to Rhodes. Uh, it was this giant landmark. It was one of the seven, seven wonders of the world at the time. Uh, eventually, an earthquake, I think in the third century, brought that, that giant uh, statue down. But then they head to Pat, uh, Patara. Patara is a seaport city on the uh, Lacosian, I think is how you pronounce that, coast. And finding a ship sailing unto Phoenicia went aboard and set forth. So we can see them heading southeast. And, and I think it's really interesting to see all of these connecting points in their travel. We've seen Paul traveling like this by sea before. But he's got all these places that he needs to stop off, all these connecting points, points of transportation in order to get to where he needs to go. And then they set off sail again. And he uh, says, now when he had discovered Cyprus, so this island uh, of Cyprus appears. And, and I, when I read that, it reminded me of when Antioch first sent Paul and Barnabas out on the missions work. Uh, the very first place that they went to was Cyprus many, many years ago. And so you can imagine Paul kind of looking out on the horizon and seeing Cyprus. And as his ministry is kind of coming to a close, I think it's really appropriate that he, he's looking at Cyprus and he's remembering that all, all that God has done since that time. I mean, look at all the stuff that we've covered. If you've been with us through Acts, look at all the things that God has used Paul to do in the world. I mean, it's so amazing. And he's looking out and you can imagine that he would be praying for all of those believers that came to Christ in his time in Cyprus. We left it on the left hand. They sailed right past it and sailed into Syria and landed at Tyre. For, for there the ship was to unlaid her burden. And finding disciples, this word finding, uh, are, it implies that they were looking for. Okay, They were actually looking for disciples in Tyre. And uh, I mean, we know that it's kind of hard to find disciples, isn't it? Sometimes it takes hunting. You've got to look for them. There's lots of people that call themselves Christian, right? Uh, but not very few disciples, very few disciples in the world. And so here in Tyre, we see uh, Paul and his gang are looking for disciples of Jesus Christ. And we tarried there seven days, who said to Paul through the Spirit that he should not go up to Jerusalem. And when he had accomplished those days, we departed and went our way. And they all brought us on our way with wives and children till we were out of the city. And we kneeled down on the shore and prayed. And so this short time that they had together, seven days in Tyre, were actually very, very sweet. It's a sweet time. I mean, we see him here, the longest of all of these stop-offs. And he's preaching and teaching and spending time with the disciples while the ship is being unburdened of all of its packages. And, and they're just kind of setting up shop for a short time and hanging out with these disciples. And it's, it's a very, very sweet time of fellowship. And Can you imagine how precious these young disciples in Tyre would have, uh, would have, how they would have perceived this, this time with Paul. I mean, what if you got seven days with Paul unexpectedly? I mean, that'd be pretty amazing, wouldn't it? So they, they're soaking up everything he had to say and everything he had to teach, and they're hanging out. So precious was this time, in fact, that when Paul and the team had to go and leave, they followed them down to the port and kneel together on the shore, and they pray. It's such a, 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 a touching and, and sweet reminder of the time of impact that that missionary had for those people. And it makes me also think about how we ought to treat missionaries. Like, 
I was studying this and I was thinking about how we ought to treat those leaders, those value leaders and, and, and church planners and, and, and men and women that have given their lives and sacrificed, sacrificed for the mission. How precious is that time when we, we get to be with them? And it, it made me think about how I was hanging out with Doug uh, Pearson this last week. We got lunch together. And uh, he pulled me aside. We were with a group. He pulled me aside. And he told me, um, Doug doesn't really, really get teary, but he's like kind of just a mushy-gushy guy in general. And he told me that on Tuesday night prayer, we were gone. We weren't here. Me and my family were still gone, headed back here. But uh, how when they came up to prayer after prayer and they, they walked into the room, that everybody applauded them. Man, and that made me feel so good. It made me feel so good to know that you guys understand the value of missionaries and what it takes to just like give up your whole life and move to India and what it takes that once you've established a work there, to, well, you know, we're, God's not done with us. Let's go to Cambodia and all the things that the Pearsons have given up to make sure that that work gets done and you guys see the value in that. And then I knew that, I, I know that, that Jake, I think Jake and, and, and the guys at his house had a little party for them and that just blesses me. And, and Mike Renault, I, don't, I saw him a minute ago, but Mike's in town. Him and his family are in town this week. And, and when you see them, you ought to express affection for them. You ought to care for them. And you ought to pray for, for these beloved individuals, these people who are living and aspiring to all the things that we desire to be. They represent to us who we're supposed to be. They're good testimonies. And we ought to care for them. And that leads us to our first key point Missionaries are special people. They're special people. And we ought to treat them special. We ought to treat them as special as they are. Not because, not because of the power of their own hand or their might, but because they've chosen to yield. And that's a good example. It's not because we need to praise them or honor them in any way like what we honor God and worship Him and praise Him. But, but it does deserve our recognition. And we even see that here modeled for us among those disciples in, in Tyre who followed Paul down to the shore. And as he, he sets sail, they show him love and affection and pray over him. Now, that leads us to beginning to talk about probably the most difficult aspect of our sermon today. And it's this idea of, of the warning that came to Paul. This is tough, and it was hard for me to study, to be honest with you. Um, so look, let's take note here that while Paul was with them in Tyre, that they... Through the Spirit, mind you, through the power of the Holy Spirit, they tell Paul that he shouldn't go to Jerusalem. It says in verse 4, In finding disciples, we tarried there uh, seven days, who said to Paul through the Spirit that he should not go up to Jerusalem. That's pretty, that's pretty explicit language, isn't it? And see, the, the thing here is that we've got to remember is that the gift of predictive prophecy was still inactive uh, at this time, right? So these people had the ability, the gifting, uh, to prophetically say, look, hey, th- the Lord has told us to tell you that if you go to Jerusalem, it's not going to be good. You ought not go. And that's, a, that's no small thing. We've got to consider that. And yet he continued on. He was determined in his heart to go to Jerusalem. And, you know, for Paul, he's been through a lot. So when someone says to him, hey, look, it's going to be bad for you there, right? When people are warning him, look, it's, it's going to be tough. They might hurt you. 
there. They might, they might put you in jail. Like, you've got to remember that for Paul, that's like no thing. Right? So he's hearing that, and it's like, I, I, I'm hearing what you're saying. Noted. You know, I, I, I hear what you're saying. I'll keep that in mind. But he knew that all things would work together for good to them that love God. He believed that, and so he determines to go on. He determines to go to Jerusalem. We're going to unpack that and look at that more as our story progresses. Verse 6, and when, he had taken our, uh, when we had taken our leave one of another, we took a uh, ship, and they returned home again. And when, he had finished, uh, when we had finished our course from Tyre, we came to Ptolemaeus and saluted the brethren and abode with them one day. And so they spend a day with these brothers in, in Ptolemaeus. And verse 8, and the next day, we that were of Paul's company departed and came into Caesarea, and we, went, we entered into the house of Philip the evangelist, which was one of the seven, and abode with him. Okay, so we remember Philip, don't we? Do we remember, some of us remember Philip? Remember Philip? Um, in Acts chapter 6, we remember that Philip was one of the very first deacons in the church in Jerusalem. Remember, they appointed seven men to do the work of deaconing, in other words, serving people. And Philip was regarded so greatly uh, in, in Jerusalem that they knew that he was a guy that should be a deacon in that early church. And then we see him again in Acts chapter 8 going to Samaria as really the first short-term missionary. Okay, some of you might remember that, that he goes to Samaria, a place that no one else would want to go, all right? And he goes there and he ministers and the church gets planted in Samaria. And so he's a mighty man of God and we've seen that testimony in him over and over again. But here Philip is referred to as the evangelist. Right? That's a big deal. He's referred to as the evangelist. And so we can look at that and say to ourselves, okay, that's like Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. Some are teachers, some are preachers, some are evangelists. In other words, clearly Philip had the gift of sharing with boldness the gospel of Jesus Christ. He had the gift of doing that. Right? But what we know from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5, that regardless of whether or not you have the gift of evangelism, you are called to be an evangelist. You are called to be an evangelist. And it's just like saying, just like I'm called to be the pastor and to preach every Sunday, that doesn't change the fact that every day you're called to also preach. I'm not the only one preaching in this ministry. All of you ought to be preaching as well, right? And just, just because someone is particularly gifted in evangelism doesn't mean we leave that work to them. All of us call, are called to be evangelists. And what an amazing title would it be and, and, and how amazing would it be if more of us were referred to as the evangelist? Reminds me of a point that Nick made in his sermon once here in, uh, in Kaya. This idea that a lot of us refer to ourselves by our occupations, don't we? And so you like, Uriah the plumber, right? Is that a thing? I'm Uriah the plumber. No? Is that actually the title or is it like a more like, technical name for what you do? Service technician. Yeah. It does, it does sound better, I guess. I, I like, I mean, for those of us who love Mario, plumber, that, that's good. But what would it be like if more of us 
people referred to us or they knew us in terms of our evangelism, right? And they said to us, man kit, you know, the evangelist, right? Jorge, you know, the the evangelist. And then, oh yeah, Jorge. I didn't know know who you were talking about first, but when you said the evangelist, then I knew who you were talking about, right? And people would begin to identify us in terms of our evangelism. So here's our next key point. We ought to, we ought to all be the type of people others refer to as the evangelist. That's the kind of people that we should be. And I think... I know, know, so I'm having all these Bible studies to my house. We're having these conversations about what it looks like for all of the Bible studies to be more active in their evangelism. What does it look like as we go through the summer and into the fall semester for us to be more evangelical and we're we're kind of strategizing and being creative about how Bible studies could better minister the gospel to other people. We're having these, and as we have these conversations, I I look around the room and some people are like, yeah, okay, and then there's other people who are scared to death about the idea. Like they picture themselves. They picture themselves in some sort of setting or some sort of social environment. And they're trying to picture themselves sharing the gospel with other people, being bold enough to do that. And it just scares the heck out of them. Now I want to say something to you. You don't just become an evangelist overnight. Like, yes, you do. Yes, yes, you do. But it's okay to be afraid in the beginning Because God teaches you that despite your weaknesses, he still wants to use you. Even though it seems a little scary, in time, you'll get to be just like me, old, and you don't care. You don't care about what people think, okay? Um, There was a, even like, I had an evangelism opportunity uh, at the swimming pool down in Galveston, there was a guy who was sharing a story with me, and with me, and I just went right for the jugular, right? Like there was just a point in the conversation was like, "Well, let me just tell you what God did in my life, right?" And you just grow less concerned. Now you, you should be appropriate, socially appropriate. No one's telling you to be a jerk, but what I'm saying is, that over time, listen, don't be afraid. Over time, God will show you. God will show you what it's like to have the gospel on the tip of your tongue. In every conversation, you're, you're looking to interject the truth of who Jesus Christ into every conversation. That doesn't happen overnight just because you got saved. Give it time. Give it time. Okay? Trust the Lord that he'll do that. So they stayed with, with Philip. They're hanging out. They're staying the night with Philip and his whole family. And the, the same man, Philip, had four daughters, it says. Virgins, which did prophesy. And so the word prophesy here is a word that describes the gift of momentary divine revelation. Okay, so this is that supernatural gift that we refer to as the gift of prophecy. It's a, it's, a, it's a prophetic teaching gift, and it's associated with this transitional time in the book of Acts. If you've got questions about that, uh, go back to the beginning. This is why we record this stuff. This is why the AV team is doing what they do. You can go back to the beginning of Acts and, and learn about what I mean by that. But in this season of the historic church, we see that God has poured out his spirit in a unique way, and he's using people in a unique way. Joel chapter 2, verse 28 says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit. And so that's what's happening here. For these four da- daughters of Philip, they're being used to speak prophetically to Paul. Now, before we get into that, What's important to know inspirationally here is that these women uh, uh, recognized that they had an important role in the mission of God. 
And I think a lot of times, because we understand that, that the Bible tells us that women aren't to be pastors, I think we get down about that. And we think that somehow the women's role is somehow lesser than in the church. Now, experientially, I can, I can tell you, based on what I've seen in this ministry alone, that there's anything, there's, there's nothing lesser than about the women in God's mission. There's, there's nothing lesser than. And in fact, when I came into this ministry, there was a deficiency in the men that were supposed to be leaders. Like, I don't have any problem saying that. For the guys that were around in that time early on, you remember that there was a bit of a deficiency, particularly as it regards evangelism, in our men. And we've seen God work through our men's lives, and a lot of that's changed. But, but man, have you seen how many female Bible studies that we have? I mean, case in point is how wonderful is it to know that we have the female Bible study leaders that we do. And think about those women and the way they pour their lives into, to, into you and how they've sacrificed and, and all of the amazing female disciples that we have in our ministry. See, there's, there's nothing lesser than in God's economy to be a woman. You have a purpose. And I pray that the women in our ministry are always striving in liberty and the Holy Spirit to serve the Lord with everything they have because we need you. We need you. And whatever season of life that you're in, whether you're single or you're married or you have children, whatever season of life you're in, we need you. We need you to be a model for us. And so please don't ever stop. We we pray God's favor and blessing on you. So continuing on in our story, Paul and the team stay with Philip and his family uh, and uh, before they head off to, uh, to continue on. And so... Let's focus here for a moment on this warning in verse 10 that we see. And as we tarried there many days, there came down from Judea a a certain prophet named Agabus. And and so you guys might be familiar with Agabus. We're going to talk about him. We've, We've seen him before. And when he was coming to us, he took Paul's girdle. Okay, so the word girdle's funny. All right, so let's, let's talk about what that means. That's just the part of his garment that holds up. So like Paul would have worn like, a, like we see in the, in the, in the uh, pictures, the drawings of Jesus of this time period. It was more of a garment, a full garment that, that, that men would wear. It was a lot like a dress. Let's just say it. It was a lot like a dress. Okay? And I sometimes, I, was, I don't know who else, I was talking to Havilah yesterday about how sometimes I just wish the men were still allowed to wear what's essentially a dress. It just seems really convenient to me. Right? Like just loose, you just throw it on, you slip it on. Um, but then the girls reminded me that so often they have to wear like, like under things, underneath the dresses, and then it started sounding less appealing. <laughs> but, but he would have had a girdle which would have been like a belt that would hold this, this garment together, or hold it shut. And so Agabus takes this girdle and he bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus saith the Holy Ghost... Okay, he makes it really clear who this message is coming from, right? So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man that owneth this girdle and shall deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Pretty clear, pretty plain. 
And so we've met Agabus before. Agabus was a prophet that we saw in Acts chapter 11 who came and prophesied of the famine. Right? Remember the great famine that's still even causing problems in Jerusalem. Remember that's why they gathered the money that Paul was going to deliver in Jerusalem. They were gathering all of these offerings was because there was this famine and it was hard. It was, it was hard on the people of the land. Agabus had prophesied of this famine in Acts chapter 11 and that's where we see him. And so he's no slouch. He's a big deal. Everybody knows that Agabus is a prophet. Everybody knows that he's a big deal. He's not just some guy that came out of nowhere. We, we know that he's a real prophet. He's not a false prophet. He prove, he's proven that to us before. Now, this particular prophecy in Caesarea reminds us a lot of the Old Testament prophecies that we see, you know, in books like Ezekiel, right? Or like the story of Hosea. Or Zechariah. Remember when Zechariah is called to be a shepherd for a season and his life is to picture a prophetic truth for the nation of Israel? Or Hosea, when he marries that prostitute? Like he didn't, he wasn't signing up for that of, of his own volition. God told him to do that because his life was supposed to dramatize a greater truth. His life was to hold a message. And so what we see a lot of times in these old prophets of the Old Testament is that they would perform out the message, it would be both the words of their mouth, but then also some sort of action that illustrates the truth of the prophecy. And that's kind of what Agabus is doing here. He takes his girdle, he gets real dramatic. I mean, like, if we saw that, we'd be like, come on, bro, chill. Just tell, what do you want to tell me? But we got to remember that, that, that among the Jewish people of this time, that, that, that these types of signs and pictures were really important to them. And so he binds his arms up with this belt, and, and, and then he says, look, this is what's going to happen to the guy that owns this belt when he gets to Jerusalem. And so he's showing Paul that if he goes to Jerusalem, that without a doubt that he was going to go to prison. Without a doubt. And it says in verse 12, And when he heard these things, Paul, both we and they of that place besought him not to go up to Jerusalem. So everybody heard this prophecy, and all of the council of Paul, like his team and all the people that were there, they tell Paul, look, bro, we beg you, don't go to Jerusalem. Verse 13, here's Paul's response. Then Paul answered, what mean ye to weep and to break mine heart? For I am ready not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Okay, so what is he saying to them? He's like, you guys are, you guys are killing me. Like, I hear what you say, and, and you're my friends, and I see that you're broken, and I'm broken. And it hurts me to know that you hurt for me. But I'm determined to do this thing. Now, on one hand, we applaud Paul's heart. I mean, it's the same heart that we've applauded over and over again. And we look at his life and he's ready to face any danger. And it's, we look at that and we say to ourselves, that's exactly what I want to be. Oh, oh my soul, that I would be so courageous to be just a little bit like Paul. That's what we say when we look at his life, right? And when he says this, we just, we're just like, wow, he's ready to die. He's ready to give his life. I want to be that kind of Christian. But on the same hand, what we we have to acknowledge, and it's, it is very hard for us to do, is that even in this moment, Paul is refusing godly counsel. He's refusing godly counsel. 
Look at verse 14. And when he would not be persuaded, we see saying, the the will of the Lord be done. And after those days, we took up our carriages, which means like our luggage, and we went up to Jerusalem. Now, now let's take some time. I want to look at this. This is, this is the crux of today's message. We had to get through that other stuff and, and consider those things. That was important. But this is what I really want to focus on today before we go. See, God wanted Paul in Rome. And, and guess what? Paul also wanted to be in Rome. He wanted what God wanted. Okay, we can't take that from him. He wanted to get to Rome. Look at Romans chapter 1, verse 10. This is what he says to his letter to Rome. Making request, if by any means now at length, I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. For I long to see you, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift, to the end you may be established. That is, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. But listen, while he wanted to go to Rome, he couldn't shake his desire to go through Jerusalem, which was the problem, right? He wanted to go through Jerusalem. Look at Romans chapter 15, verse 23. But now having no more place in these parts and having a great desire to see these these many years to come unto you. In other words, he he knew for many years that he was supposed to go to Rome. This was on his mind. This was on his heart. Look at verse 25. But now I go into Jerusalem to minister unto the saints. So Paul has received in, in this story at least two Warnings, two warnings to not go to Jerusalem. Now listen, this was not just, this was not just some just personal advice, like, hey, bro, you should probably not go to Jerusalem. I mean, look at the situation, and you know, we're, we're sitting here, we're thinking about it. We want to advise you not. It wasn't like that. Look, these were well-intentioned, sincere believers who had Paul's best intention in mind, who were filled with the Holy Ghost, the Spirit of the Lord, and spoke truth to Paul. And what we find in Paul's life, and all of this advice and all this counsel to not go to Jerusalem, what we find, just like we studied a couple weeks ago, is we find all four proofs of God's leading to Rome. All four proofs. God's word... If we start there, God's word to Paul was, you are a minister to the Gentiles. Not the Jews, the Gentiles. That was the word of God to Paul. He knew that. He recognized that. His circumstances also pointed to Rome. The book of Romans itself proves that Paul knew he was supposed to go there. His circumstances were driving him to the city of Rome. And we know from our story today that the Spirit was express about this. So the Spirit has now also confirm the fact that he's supposed to go there. And then beyond that, we see here, of course, the counselors in his life also confirming that he was supposed to go to Rome and not Jerusalem. And we look at this verse a couple of weeks ago, but it's worth reconsidering, Proverbs eleven fourteen, where no counsel is, the people, they, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. And, and there's no way around it. Listen to me. We all love Paul. And it's on a very rare occasion that we see Paul falter in any way. And so when we look at this story, and you look at, you look at theologians and commentators for a really long time, they do a lot of them of sincerity, they try to explain this away. Because they don't want to, they don't want to think to themselves that, that Paul was wrong here. And I get that. It's hard for us to think about that because he's such an amazing man of God. And he still is. 
But even amazing men of God make mistakes. Now, we've got to give Paul a little bit the benefit of the doubt. Okay? Paul never once relented from the will of God. He's in the will of God. He's doing the mission of God. He's doing what he's been called to do. Okay? It's the details that he's getting hung up on. Right? It's, it's, it's the way in which he should go. It's, it's the plan, not the will of God, that he's getting confused. It's the plan. And he's struggling here. And he was convinced in his mind and in his heart somehow that this was a, a decision of personal liberty. Like this is an area, area where God has given me permission to make a decision. Like I get it. I'm hearing what the Holy Spirit's saying, that if I go to Jerusalem, that it's going to be bad for me. But I feel like what God's saying is that, that despite that, I've got liberty or permission to do this. Like I don't think Paul was trying to be wicked. I think Paul himself was also well-intentioned. I think he wanted to do a good thing. He had raised all this money for Jerusalem. He wanted to take it and deliver it in person. I mean, even though Timothy or any of the other dudes could have done it, he wanted to take it in person. He loved these people. He had a heart for them. And also, he didn't have a completed word of God. And so when a prophet comes to you, right, he's thinking to himself, like, okay, well, you know, it's not quite as firm as as the word of God and so maybe, maybe Paul was thinking like, hey, maybe these, these, these prophecies aren't so sure. Okay, let's give him the benefit of the doubt. But nonetheless, nonetheless, in retrospect, we as believers can look at Paul's life and we can say to ourselves, I think with some confidence that Paul made a mistake in, go, in going to Jerusalem. Now God used it, and we'll talk about that in a second, but... but This wasn't the way that God intended for him to go. Nonetheless, we find Paul denying the diverse and holy counselors who are saying the same thing. And so that leads us to key point, our next key point. I think it's key point number three. Is that right? Even righteous, mission-minded, holy, Men and women of God can make wrong decisions. Never forget that. The the, the people that we revere and look to, like all of us are capable, especially when it concerns what seem to be small and minor decisions, like paths to take, right? We can all make bad decisions. I can tell you honestly that since I've been pastoring this ministry, I've made bad decisions, And I can tell you that I've received counsel from people in this ministry about things I'm just like, "Eh, well, mm, I know that you're saying that, but, and I I follow my way, and then I I can look back and say, well, they were probably right. That's going to happen a lot in our lives. We're going to make mistakes just like that. Just because people are righteous and mission-minded doesn't mean that they're not going to make a mistake here or there. Paul wasn't evil, and there was no malice in his decision. He just disagreed with the counsel that he was getting. So what does that mean for us, though? Like, how does that apply to our lives? That's what we want to get to. This is, the, this is the part where it gets real for us as believers. What about us? Have you ever faced a moment when your opinions came in conflict with the counsel of godly leaders in your life? And certainly, all of us can probably say, yeah, yeah. I've had opinions or feelings or passions or ideas that came in conflict with 
with what I know maybe now to be holy counsel. From time to time, we all face moments where we get counsel we don't agree with because we feel passionate about something. Now listen to me. This is super important. Your motivations can be completely pure and yet completely wrong. God has led us and been faithful to communicate to us and and counsel us, and yet we sometimes, sometimes we still choose to follow how we feel about all kinds of decisions, right? About where you're going to go to college, about who it is that you're going to even marry. I mean, these are big decisions. Big decisions, whether or not to buy a house, how to spend money here or there. Like, we've talked about this stuff before. Life is riddled with decisions that need to be made, small and big. And we can, of a sincerity of heart, of all of the right motivations, of a desire to be in God's will, to, to follow what he has for us, make decisions or mistakes that can derail or cut short or hinder aspects of ministry. We can do that. We can do that. And in those moments, there are a few things that we need to consider. What do we do? What should should the response, let's start here. What should the response of the counselor be? What should the perspective of the counselor be in moments like this where you're giving counsel and you you believe that it's of God? It it seems to be coming from God's word. You're you're looking at God's word and you're saying, this is what I see in, in the will of God. And then you're saying to yourself, as it concerns this person you're supposed to be counseling, you're saying to yourself, their circumstances actually seem to be denying what they're saying. And it seems as though the Spirit of God hasn't yet confirmed that this decision that they want to make is right either. Man, I don't feel right about this. I'm going to counsel them to not go that direction. Shepherds and leaders, we're going to face moments in ministry, in discipleship, in our small groups, Where people that you love deeply and have a strong conviction for desire to do something that's incredibly unwise. And if it's unbiblical, you ought to warn them. And if it conflicts with the Spirit's leading, you ought to warn them. And if it's counter to the work of the ministry, you ought to warn them. But ultimately, we have to let people fail and suffer the consequences of their decisions, we can't be in the business of controlling people. And and leaders, listen to me. This is very, very, very serious. Because we can feel so passionate for someone and for their life that sometimes we could be bossy. And sometimes when when people won't hear sound counsel, we just simply have to let them go and figure it out for themselves. We have to to be willing to to let God do his work. This is why despite the warnings, these believers in Caesarea were willing to let Paul make his own decision about whether or not to go to Jerusalem. Look at what it says in verse 14. And when he would not be persuaded. In other words, they took the time to warn him. They were persuading him. They were giving him the full pitch. They were explaining it to him in every way that they knew how. They were trying to convince this guy. Look, we're pleading with you. We ceased saying, the will of the Lord be done. So this is our next key point. As leaders, we have to learn when to let God do the persuading. As leaders, we need to learn when to let God do the persuading. 
I've done, I, I, I've done all the persuading I could do. I, I showed them from God's word. I, we, we talked about their circumstances. You know, we, we listened to the spirit of the Lord, and I've, I've given them everything I can give them. And, and I'm just going to have to, I have no choice, but I'm going to have to give it over to God in prayer and let him do the work. Let him do the persuading. Let him do the convincing. And listen, God is way more persuasive than you and I will ever be. We're talking about his children. We're talking about people that he cares for way more than you ever will. He is their good, you might be a shepherd in their life, but he is their good shepherd. And he will be faithful to lead them and guide them, especially if we're talking about believers that are in God's will. They're just maybe a little misguided, or or they're not listening or heeding sound counsel. Man, they haven't severed or or hurt their, their conscience or divided themselves from the Lord. They're still in his will. They're just making some some unwise decisions, man, the Lord is so faithful to superintend and to be over the flock of, of, of his children. He's so faithful to do that. And we've got to, as leaders, at sometimes say, okay, I don't even need to be arrogant or proud about it. I don't need to be judgmental. I just need to turn it over. I love that person, and I know God loves them more, and I'm going to let God work in their lives. We can only advise people at the level that they're willing to receive it. So sometimes godly people will make decisions that you are very confident are unwise. And in these seasons, we have to let them exercise their free will. After all, that's a gift that God gave them. And let them have, and let God have his way with them. Okay, so that's to the counselors. Does that make sense, leaders? And all of us lead. I mean, if we're, if we're disciples of Jesus Christ, in some way, we all are leaders. And so you need to consider that. But listen, this is to the decision makers, which includes all of us. Every, everybody, besides just leaders. This is for the decision makers. When you're making a decision that runs counter to what your pastors and leaders are sharing with you, then you open yourself up to the risk of consequence. I mean, there's, that's really simple thought, but it's just true. When they're using scripture, when they're warning you of potential outcomes of your decisions, you have to consider the cost associated with refusing the multitude of counselors. You've got to consider that risk. So when you've got believers that are surrounding you, people that, that care for you, you know they care for you. They've, they've shown you over and over, time and time again, that they love you and they have your best interest in mind. And they might even, as a whole, be wiser than you. And they're telling you that maybe that's not a good decision. Well, guess what? It might not be a good decision. And if you decide to, per, to pursue and to move forward despite that, then you need to be aware that there might be consequences associated with that. That has to be a part of your decision-making. Look at Second Chronicles 19.5. Okay, it seems like a random place to go, but I really like this passage, and I think it, it points to, to how we need to be thinking. It's, this is, God is addressing the judges okay, over the nation of Israel, and he's kind of giving them a warning about decision-making. Because we all know that the decision that the judges of over the nation of Israel make, those decisions that they make, they impact everybody, right? There's, there's clearly consequences associated. Look what it says in verse 5 of chapter 19. And he said, judges in the land through all the fenced cities of Judah, uh, city by city. Okay, so these judges are the decision makers, just like you and I are decision makers. And said to the judges, take heed what ye do. For ye judge not for man... But for the Lord, who is with you in the judgment, wherefore now let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Take heed 
and do it. For there is no iniquity with the Lord our God, nor respect of persons, nor taking of gifts. So what is this saying? This is pointing out to us that the fact, so just like these judges, the decisions that they make, they're on behalf of the Lord and they affect the congregation of the Lord. The decisions that we make do the exact same thing. When we make decisions about our life as believers, they have an impact on the ministry. They have an impact on what God wants for our lives, his plan for our lives, what he wants to do, and it even affects the congregation of believers that we serve with. So whatever decision that you make in your life, many of those decisions they impact me. They impact Harrison. They impact Rachel. They impact the believers that surround you. Even if they feel distant, we all feel the repercussions of the decisions that you make every single day. And so you ought not make those decisions lightly because we're a family. In my family, a decision that, that, that Shepherd makes might not immediately affect me, but it will affect me. Because we're a family. And we've got to think about this. This has got to be important to us. So this leads us to the next key point. And I tried to be succinct here, but it's a little bit of a long one. So I'll give you a little bit of time to write it down. Be warned, decision makers. You can make a good decision that isn't the right decision. It can seem good in your flesh and in your logic and in your feelings. And it might even be according to the will of God. Like it might even... it might even facilitate ministry or, or, or it, might, it might be good, right? It might do something good for the kingdom. In your mind, it's like, well, I see this as beneficial to God, this decision I'm making. But it doesn't make it the right decision. Because good implies like, okay, well, it might be completely fine. Like going to Jerusalem might be completely fine. But it doesn't make it right, It's possible, listen to me, believer, it's possible for you to be in the will of God but refuse his best plan for your life. That's that's real. That's a possibility. It's possible to be completely well-intentioned and yet completely misled. Be careful about not heeding when God is leading you. You could spare yourself a ton of suffering that you don't even foresee. You don't even have eyes to see. You could save yourself a lot of trouble. So let's look at Paul's fate as we close out. Paul ends up in trouble almost immediately upon arrival in Jerusalem. So these believers, these saints in the Holy Spirit, they were right. He wasn't even evil. He kept talking about, hey, I want to go to the, to the feast. I want to be a part of the Feast of Pentecost. Remember that? He keeps talking about that. He doesn't, even, he doesn't ever make it. I mean, almost immediately he runs into trouble. God was right. The council was right. And, and listen, ultimately, Paul only just cut his own mobility in the mission short. It didn't derail the work. It just cut his ministry involvement short. He thought that he could get to Rome through Jerusalem on his own terms. But it didn't work that way. But here's the deal. Despite his poor decision, God still chose to use him. That's that's the amazing thing, that because he was in God's will and he was in the faith, that even though he made a mistake, that God still used him to get everything done that he wanted to get done. Everything. Nothing got lost. And God can do that for you too. Look at our next key point. God can use you despite your mistakes. 
Despite the mistakes that you make, this, this room is full of people who've made mistakes over the last week, over the last month, some of them over the last year, really big ones, that, that you think to yourself, man, that really got in the way of what God was doing in my life. I shouldn't have done that. In retrospect, you know, I'm going to use, I just thought of Braden as an example. Braden, uh, I told Braden, I mean, I don't know, UCM, man, I don't know about UCM when he graduated from high school. I don't know if that's a great idea. What if you stayed here? You could get that same degree here at UMKC. And, and I only use him because he was, he was, Humble enough that after he graduated from UCM, he came to me and said, look, I probably should have heeded your counsel. UCM was kind of a wilderness experience. Now, did God use you despite the fact that you went to UCM? And, and yeah, So Nathan is the fruit that proves that God used Braden despite the fact that he probably would have gotten more out of an experience here with us, Right? Are you mad that he made that mistake, Nathan? I didn't think so. (laughs) I didn't think so. See, God isn't mad at Paul. God's going to get his work done either way. God was faithful to execute his plan, and Paul eventually makes it to Rome. He does. He gets there. He just makes it there in chains. He doesn't get to impart the spiritual gift. Remember that promise he made in Romans? He wants to impart a spiritual gift in Rome. He doesn't get to make that investment the way that he imagined. Because when he gets to Rome, he does it in chains. God is so gracious and wonderful that he can work through even our mistakes as long as our heart is for him. And that's the main thing. Because there's people in this room today that you think you're making good decisions, but the truth is you're not even in God's will. So God can't work through your mistakes because your mistakes are counter to who he is. They're counter to his character. They're, the count, they're counter to his, his work in this world. And you're making these decisions and you think that they're good. But really they're not. Really they're selfish. And it's real easy for us to make decisions that are selfish and, and call them godly. We can twist things and, and, and you know, make the story fit. We want to be careful of that. Isn't it better to avoid the drama and heed to God's leading? Is better. Even Paul thought so. <laughs> Later on, he implies as much when he's preaching to King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26, verse 29, it says, and Paul said, he's, pre- like he's preaching the gospel. Listen, y'all, he's in Rome, and he's preaching the gospel. So God's still using him. But listen to what he has to say. I would to God that not only thou, but also all that hear me this day were both We're both almost and altogether such as I am. In other words, I wish that all of you would know Christ the way that I know him. But listen to what he adds on to that. Accept these bonds. Accept these bonds. So here's what, as as the worship team comes up, here's the invitation today. Believers, if you've got big decisions that you're making and you haven't sought counsel of of leaders, godly leaders in your life, or maybe you've, you've heard what they have to say and you've refused it and you haven't, you haven't considered it the way that you should. I want to invite you, as we worship, for you to come and grab that leader and to pray with them and to work through it. Does that make sense? Like, don't leave until you've worked through this because whatever decision you end up making, it's great. It's great that it be in God's will, but it's even better that it's in God's plan. He's got a plan for you. It's specific to you. It's unique. You are a snowflake. Like, that's okay. 
In, in many regards, you are unique in God's creation. He has a very specific plan that he wants to execute in your life. Don't derail that. Get it right. Work through this. Take heed to the counselors in your life because they're going to steer you in a way that's godly. Now, with that said, I want to also address the people in this room that aren't even in God's will. Like I'm saying all this stuff, and we're talking about Christians making decisions and leaders in the church and shepherds. What does the Bible say? What's the Spirit say? And I'm saying all this, and it's falling on foreign ears. This This is content you've never heard before. I want to pause right now because I haven't mentioned the name Jesus Christ as much as I ought in this message. And so I want, to, I want to stop right here and I want to end by letting you know that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came into this world to, to bring you into fellowship with the creator of the universe. And he loves you way more than I ever can, way more than your family or your friends ever can. He loves you so deeply. The creator of the universe, he spoke and, and the galaxies were formed. And he cares about you and he knows you intimately. He knows every little detail of your life. The Bible says he even knows how many hairs are on your head at all times. He's got, the, he's got count. He's like, listen to me, don't deny him. Don't deny him what belongs to him. He gave you a soul and you need to give it back to him. He died a death that we deserved. He hung on a cross and bled and died. He cares for you so much. And he rose from the dead to defeat death that you might know him intimately. So please don't leave today unless you know that you're in God's will. There's going to be counselors that are standing up here. Just during the worship set, just come up here and grab a hold of someone and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for this message. We thank you for, in such a wonderful man like Paul, (laughs) where he's time and time again the, the perfect example for us, that we can look at his life and say, even in his flaws, we can learn. And so, Lord, I just ask that we would, you would make us good decision makers, that we would when you're leading us and when you're proving things out to us, that we would hear those things, we'd be sensitive, we'd meditate on those things, and we res- always respond to you with, yes, God, I hear you and I, and I want to obey you. Would you, sh- would you show us how to do that, Lord? Would you make us sensitive to that? We need you. And Lord, we want to shun any selfish decisions that we make. So teach us how not to just be in your will, but to follow your plan for our lives, to live out the gifts, and to be creative, and to be strategic in all the ways that you have for us specifically. We need your help, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope that today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in his word. For more information about Kaya, For service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.live.